It's pointless trying to intervene and develop if you can't get to the root of what actually occurred in that moment. Uh, and only by talking, empathising, um, digging a little bit deeper with that particular individual will you even start to break the surface of what actually occurred within that decision-making moment. Welcome to episode five of the Coaching Discourse, um, hosted by myself, Dr. Anna Sodter, uh, Laurie McDonald and Derek O'Riordan. Um, so this is the last of our episodes in the current series, and this is going to be about decision-making. <clears throat> and so we're going to focus on decision-making from the perspective of two of our esteemed guests joining us today, and they're working within team sports and business neuropsychology um, so lots of different varied experiences to bring to this uh, episode, which we're really excited to hear from them on. Um, obviously, first, before we go into hearing from them and hearing them introduce themselves, um, I just wanted to introduce the topic of decision making. So obviously, decision making is really important in our everyday life from what socks you put on. I've got some stripy ones on today. Um, more to what you have for lunch, which is a very important uh, decision for me, but also decisions more relating to sport and coaching in particular. Um, so, for example, yesterday, the, some of the latest swimmers for the Tokyo Olympics have been announced, the team selection for Team GB, which is quite an interesting decision. Um, it kind of struck me as something that was an interesting decision to be making at this point. Um, and these are all just different um, examples of some kind of decisions that we make day to day and it would be interesting in this episode to hear more about some of the processes that underpin those decisions or not, as the case may be. So we're really aware in putting across this topic that there are different schools of thought on decision making. And so we thought we'd invite two guests from different contexts to find out what they think about it. Hopefully they'll be telling us some interesting stories along the way about how they've helped others, be that athletes, coaches, or even business executives make better decisions or indeed enhance the art of their decision-making, depending on their approach. <clears throat> so without more chat from me and without me putting too many words in their mouths, um, I'd like to hear from our two guests. So Mike, would you like to introduce yourself first, please? Yeah, of course, thanks for that very kind introduction, Anna. Um, yeah, so Mike Ashford um, currently and very recently moved across to Coventry University and taken up a lecturer position there after spending 10 years at Leeds Beckett as an eternal student. Um, also, my experiences are very much uh, from a rugby union basis and have later moved into coach development across an, a number of sports. Thanks, Mike. Um, so, Carrie, do you want to introduce yourself as well, please? Yes, my name is Kerri-Ann Davis and I am a consultant. Um, I work mostly in business, a bit in high performance sport, but politics of the arts as well. Um, started off as a lecturer, um, then moved into neuroeconomics um, and then across into high performance sport in Australia and in the GB system. And now I just do my own thing as a consultant and most of my work is in decision making. So I'm quite excited about this evening. Hope I can learn something. And it's quite rare for me to do anything like this. I like to fly under the radar and live in the shadows. So well done, Anna, for pulling me out into the light. <laughs> no, thank you so much uh, to both of you for agreeing to come on. Hopefully this will be a nice informal chat and we'll get to hear more about everyone's experiences in the area. So we're going to kick off first with a pretty open question that comes from Derek. And this is, 
based on his experiences. It was uh, your idea, Derek, to do a, a decision-making kind of topic. So please kick us off with this uh, great question. Thanks for that. And uh, I suppose just for me to extend some thanks to both Mike and, uh, and Kerry for, for joining us in the first place um, uh, at five o'clock on a Thursday evening when we should be talking into our tea. Um, I suppose the, the question that, that, um, that I'm wanting to ask is probably driven from my own curiosity about decision-making and I was just keen to ask you both, uh, where do our decisions come from? Um, well, it's a, bit, it's a good question, actually. Um, and if we're going to answer it truthfully, we don't know. None of us know. Um, and the whole area of exploring how we make decisions and why is a really interesting one. Um, we are getting closer to understanding how it comes about, um, but in terms of where it comes from, probably the best answer we think we have at the moment is somewhere between the orbital frontal nucleus in the brain, which is the front part of the brain, and its interconnection with some of the phylogenetically older parts of our brain, such as the amygdala, and how those two interplay, and then we encode our memories in our hippocampus accordingly, based on probably some kind of neuroeconomic approach to assigning some value to it based on risk and reward. So from a very kind of like obvious answer, I guess that's about as close as we've got. Um, I guess to expand on it a little bit, um, the kinds of things that we would expect would influence decision-making in the frontal part of our brain um, would be problem-solving and reasoning. So some of the cognitive higher functional aspects of how we how we work as humans and how we think about us like machines how we operate um, and the things that affect sort of our, our amygdala are more psychological components like confidence composure concentration personality some of our epigenetics sort of sitting there as well um, and in terms of how we then encode it in our hippocampus and we use memory to develop our learning and lay down those pathways um, there's a whole range of things, but context plays a key role in there. So things like our culture, our habitus, norms, values, the environment, the task, and the challenge, they all sort of affect how we go about that decision-making. But in terms of where it comes from, we don't really know. Um, but we do know that we are souls, and we know that we're not computers, and we know that we have something other than just... Um, digital coding that sits behind our decision making that's about i think that's about as good as we've got so far in terms of where it comes from sorry if that was quite an academic answer hitting <laughs> us with the science the science is coming out <clears throat> the brain right go on mike <laughs> can oh. you match that where, uh, where do i just come from <laughs> <laughs> i mean I can't really compete in terms of the the cognitive element there, and it's really interesting to hear that perspective. But I guess, I guess I saw it more from an experience point of view over time. I think it's really hard to separate decision making when from the actual tasks, the decisions taking place within. So our decisions in, initially come from the tasks that we're placed within, whether that's just out of coincidence or from a parent's decision to ask a child to do something. Um, and over time, those tasks uh, provide different demands and different different opportunities to those people to move in a particular way, to think in a particular way. And I guess I just wanted to touch upon the components then. Well, the task then offers some information. The, that person is then required to perceive or recognize particular 
particular elements of that information and that can happen visually audially and even in terms of haptically with like feel and touch and sense and i guess it, it it then comes to the ability over time can that person predict or anticipate can that person notice global global element of perception more discrete information and a word that i might touch upon a few times the idea of salient information that uh, we know that experts can recognize salient information from a from a still frame so that that builds up over time uh, interacting with that task and i guess whilst perception and recognition is extremely important you, it's no point in perceiving or recognizing something without having the capability to act on that and i think when i talk about capability sometimes capability can be mistruth for just technical and physical or and i think where i come at it from is the capability is not only the technical and physical but the knowledge base not only knowledge of and about but also the ability to use context uh, and knowledge in the task so i think i always start with the task and then build outwards um if that answers the question <laughs> yeah for sure um i, I suppose it, it's, a, it's a question that I'm, I'm keen to drill down on between both yourself and and Kerry and, and Kerry, I might, I might pick you up to just clarify what neuroeconomics is, um, but but one thing that I'm starting to become interested in is is what what mediating role in values, beliefs, assumptions uh, play in the way in which we make decisions, not just as people in everyday life, but potentially as athletes. And I'm thinking of things like risk or um, or coaches around how they treat the athletes that they've got or when they make selection decisions uh, when they choose to bare their teeth, for example. Um, so I'm, I'm just keen to explore um, to what extent uh, those uh, values, beliefs, assumptions that we hold dear as human beings um, based on the way in which we view the world, how they influence the decisions that we make as well. So Kerry, can I come to you just to clarify what neuroeconomics is to start with? <laughs> Yeah, it's the study of, um, well, it's three combined disciplines, effectively. Neuroscience, how our brains are effectively working. Economics, from a basic utility point of view, um, what adds value, what works. Um, and psychology. So how do we operate as human beings? Um, what drives the decision making? So it's, um, it's a relatively new field, actually. It's only been really studied for about 20, 25 years. Um, and it's, it's got some decent teeth, as you put it there, um, the last 10 years. So if we take um, those three combined disciplines, economics, neuroscience, and psychology, and combine them, tries to formulate a view of how we operate and why. What resonated with me as soon as you asked that question is I'll refer back to one of your earlier episodes with Dave, Andy and Vinny. Um, I mean, not to use the words again, I'm sure you get thrown down people's necks at the moment, but uh, a person's ontology and epistemology is extremely important when we actually look at decision making as a concept. And I, I think what, what Kerry said earlier about we don't know, <laughs> And I absolutely love that. And I'm absolutely on board with that when it comes to decision making. We, we have a view of reality around how decision making might work. And that will then inform how we go about making sense of what decision making is. Um, and we know that decision making is littered with different views about that. 
and those views might be formed in unchallenged assumption, assumptions, or they might be informed from a specific, a, a specific, specific paradigm and way of thinking. And I think that that's why decision making is such a fascinating subject, because the way you make sense of it is it into out from the brain outwards, or is it out to in from the environment inwards? That simply viewing decision making from those two from those two standpoints, and I don't want to create a dichotomy because it's something I really don't want to get into, but those, those two ways of looking at decision-making uh, can create a different way to perceive how decisions happen, a different way to perceive how decisions can be supported and developed, and then finally a different way in decisions can actually be reviewed and reflected upon. Um, so it's extremely important to consider where a person comes at this comes at this subject and discipline from. Thanks, Mike. Great, great. Uh, yeah, great, Mike. I definitely agree with Mike there. I certainly find in my work, the key is to meet the person where they are um, and really understand things from that person's perspective. Um, when it comes to values, I think it's very easy when we're developing systems, for example, in high performance sport, where we we put some arbitrary measures on things and we say this is how it should be this is how we want it to be and we often forget the journey of the individual in there and how they're experiencing their learning and um, i'll give you a, a real life example rather than talking conceptually for the whole session there but from my own personal perspective um being a working class uh, girl from south wales with a very strong accent you know and then traveling to australia and living there um, and having to um, fit in with my sport there was very, very challenging for me. Um, and I see this quite a lot when I work with different individuals across different industries. Um, one of the challenges they have with their decision making is how do they reflect themselves in the organisation or the setup that they're in? Um, and so it's really easy that a set of assumptions are applied without understanding the context of the person. Um, and I think it is easier for certain groups to adapt than others. Um, so, you know, um, and I think, we're, you know, what's going on in the world at the moment, we're drawing attention to, to those more minority perspectives. Um, and I think that's really, really important. So in terms of like values, um, I mean, they, they sit behind everything that we do, um, it, on more on an unconscious level than a conscious level. So for example, um, had I not married a Scottish man and moved to Scotland, you know, tonight I might not be having my fish cakes with, um, with my really nice chili sauce, with a really posh salad with what my, my mum would have considered posh anyway. Um, but, but if I'd stay put in, you know, my council estate in South Wales, which was brilliant, I'd probably have the faggots and peas. So, the, you know, the context, the culture, the habitus that we embody um, drives most of our decision making and it's mostly done on an unconscious level. Um, so as we all as coaches work with the individual, we have to understand where they're coming from. Um, it's really important because then we're better able to influence and support them. Um, and maybe we don't do that as well as we could most of the time. Um, it's a bit of a deliberate process to stop and really think about the human you're dealing with. Um, not just the system you're working in. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, but I think that leads really well onto what Laurie's question was. 
So Laurie, does that, does that ring a bell? <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. And, and I'd love to go back at some point and just uh, ask Mike a question from what he said. But yes, I wanted to ask him, um, how do we account for individual differences when developing and reviewing decision-making capabilities? And I guess both from a coach's and an athlete's perspective. So is there certain information that a coach is privileging? Um, you know, if we are, if what we perceive is based upon the sensory experience that we are having, then that will be, a, I would assume, a quite a highly individualized experience. And then, you know, that if, and I'm sorry, I'm adding layers to this. I'm just trying to give you some reasoning behind why I've asked this question. If you consider the various demands that are placed on athletes during moments of competition, whether that's psychological, technical, tactical, social, emotional, yada, 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 again, those influencing factors will be highly individualized. So what I notice is that coaches are often, um, including myself, looking at the changes to external stimulus information and less so what's happening internally with the athletes as well. So that's a bit of background why I've asked that question and you can answer it in any way you please. I mean, I've, uh, it's really resonated with me because yesterday I was, I was involved in a discussion with um, a few professional rugby coaches, one of whom we got into this idea of, well, if a mistake happens or if a, a wrong decision occurs, um, what, is the, what is the influence around that decision? and I'm going to throw some jargon here as well, involved within the, the team's wider shared mental model of what performance should look like. And this coach was discussing the idea of, well, sometimes we, we, we offer the players binary, binary decisions, which have, have very much a, a rigid uh, indicator of performance. So, and that would be, is it successful or isn't it? This, was, this is what we do in this situation. Is it successful or isn't it? But there are obviously a multitude of decisions that you could, just couldn't possibly ever do that with. And I think what the wrong way to go about reviewing decision-making, whether it's from a coaching point of view or from an individual point of view, is think of things as in right and wrong. I just think that that's a real... Because decision-making is grey. If we don't know what it is or how it occurs, how can we say if someone's made, made a right or wrong decision? So where, where I try and come at this from with coaches or with players is, well, are you assuming or are you diagnosing how that decision occurred? Are you taking the time to invest and actually diagnose how that decision was come to? If that decision holds that, that level of importance in the first place, and with that then comes a, 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 a so many ways that you could delve into it. You could think about what they saw at the time, what they thought, what they were hearing from their teammates. And then you could even get into their biopsychosocial elements, their experiences during that day. Were they just having a bad day? Uh, did they feel a niggle in, in an injury that would have an impact on the way they recognize the situation? So what I'm trying to get at is that when we review um, and when we seek to develop an athlete's decision-making, it's pointless trying to intervene and develop if you can't get to the root of what actually occurred in that moment. Uh, we, and only by talking, empathizing, 
um, digging a little bit deeper with that particular individual, will you even start to break the surface of what actually occurred within that decision-making moment? I could go off on, on a tangent here, but based on time, I'm just going to probably extend on what Mike was saying there, um, which was, I, I agree, it's grey. It's very rarely black and white. Um, however, um, we can try and reduce it into binary status by thinking about it both in terms of risk and reward. So ultimately, at that moment, a decision is made based on risk versus reward. Um, and so if we take, for example, some real life examples, you watched John Higgins at the snooker the other night at the Masters, you know, he made a decision whether to go for a double or not. And ultimately, you look at that one decision as a discrete decision, and you would say that was the wrong decision. He's had a fantastic tournament. He's made all these right decisions over all those hours, over all those frames, and then that one decision blows it. But actually, the context matters because had he made the pot, and he could have made the pot, then he'd be a hero, and that would have been the best decision ever. Um, and and also, you know, when I work with people, I think look at big wave riders, for example. The decision they have to take, whether to get on that wave and when to get off it, is sometimes life or death. Or if we're working with surgeons. And you say, actually, it, um, it isn't about right or wrong decisions when they're in there and someone's under anaesthetic and it's moment to moment decision making. It's actually more about conviction sometimes than it is about getting the decision right. So sometimes it's about applying the decision with conviction than it is about making the correct one. So let's take John Higgins as an example again. Was it that he shouldn't have gone for that double or was it that he should have played it with more conviction? And so it's understanding what the intent is behind the decision as much as the decision itself. And this is the challenge I have when we take a topic like decision making and we start unpacking it, is that we sometimes lose the interconnectedness around these topics. So should we really be exploring decision making without looking both at reasoning and problem solving or psychological components like confidence, composure and concentration or the cultural components such as values and and the habitus that we embody as we go through those experiences. So that is one of the, it's good to unpack one area, but then we have to always kind of refer back and see us, see the complexity of what we're trying to achieve. And give ourselves a bit of a break, give ourselves a pat on the back and say, actually, the journey of discovery here is worth it, um, even if we don't always have the answer yet. And um, so that's just kind of a little, a little bit more philosophical than you there, Mike, or even deeper there. Uh, sorry, everyone. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that um, because I think every decision it's not only the cognitive it's the behavioral and the effective that comes with it we know anxiety has an impact on decision making we know fatigue has an impact on decision making and we know that uh, the, the social cohesion in a team whether a shared mental model is shared will have an impact on decision making and I, I, I couldn't agree more with you on, on the case of there are so many things at play here. Sometimes delving into the complexities of one decision could be really quite detrimental to the decision the next time. So absolutely with you. Judgment is an interesting um, word that, that can probably come into play across what Mike is saying and, and what Kerry's saying. We consider decisions as being right and wrong. And if we take it back to what Mike said earlier on around how we might view decision-making from an ontological perspective. 
and let's let's start thinking about relativism, okay, or, or the, the reality is multiple, then the way in which every person constructs a reality, they're going to make a decision different to everybody else. And why don't we just accept that rather than judge people for the decisions that they make because they are at odds with perhaps the decisions that that you might make. Does, does, does that make sense? So, like, to what extent does judgment play in the, t- the decisions that we make and to use a word that you're using and um, carry uh, risk so risking making certain decisions for fear of judgment so for example within a within a rugby context you know i might see an opportunity for a half break but i might not necessarily take that risk because i might get turned over now that might be based on action capabilities or it might be based on the fact that the coach is going to absolutely chew me out if i get the ball turned over so judgment gets in the way of, of decisions being made, right? Uh, what can we do to alleviate that? Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you came back to that word risk because oftentimes we think about risk as being something that mediates us, that kind of holds us back, that makes us think twice before we do something. But um, risk can also operate on the other end of the spectrum, which is we, we, we run the risk of missing out. So if we think about trading, for example, people might hold a position for too long because they're afraid of missing out. They don't want to get off that big wave. Um, They want to stay and play. So risk can uh, work on two ends of the spectrum. It can drive behaviors towards a particular set of circumstances and it can pull us away. Um, So that's that's what I find in in my work. But in terms of why can't we just stop judging, um, I would love a world where we did that. However, high performance sport and high performance environments generally lead to a particular outcome. And that's why we're often attracted to them. There's a winner and there's a loser. No one wants to lose. People like to win. So the fact that there's an outcome actually drives our motivation towards whether we choose to take the necessary risks and rewards that are in front of us and how we choose to perceive them. But what you were saying earlier around shared mental models, this is a kind of concept that we see thrown around a lot by coaches and teams. But how can we possibly have a totally shared, integrated mental model of something when we all have these individual perspectives and experiences, value systems? You know, what we can try and do is create a discourse what we can try and do is create a framework of understanding. We can try and create some algorithms too that allow us to guide ourselves and prevent us from having biases and making errors in our judgments and our decisions. But having this idea of a shared mental model where it's pure, I would love to get there one day, but unless I'm prepared to join a cult, which I'm not, I, I'm hoping I will never get there. <laughs> just from just my interpretation of the shared mental model literature is exactly what you've just said. So from a sporting context, it's fairly logical to, to know that people aren't going to be able to map out uh, intentions, uh, decisions in a very formalized fashion. But what I think we are able to do is come up with shared principles, uh, a common language that guides perception, where to look and when, where to look and why. And then what our intentions are as a collective that still allows, because we know, I mean, just jumping back to the rugby example, we we spend all week in rugby trying to get people to be really conscientious and uh, follow follow and abide in rules. But then on Saturday, you've got 15 mental, um, completely neurotic human beings going hell for leather at each other. So it, 
this I perceive a shared mental model as something that still allows for that neuroticism, just guided by shared principles, tactical rules, and a common language. Um, and in that, in answer to your other question, I mean, Alex Honnold's just ringing in my head around the idea of consequence and the idea of judgment. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the film um, Free Solo, um, but it's just a fascinating example of someone who is literally planning the most crazy venture to climb a to climb a face without any rope, completely free, and planning every move. But then when he's actually on that mountain, it, it's so intuitive, it's so based on feel. It's so so you've got two two completely different ways of making decisions, both involved in the performance of the same task. Um, whilst he's getting complete and utter judgment from his his fairly new girlfriend, um, and I, I think that's it. That's a real. It's a real nice lived example of exactly that thing around fear, consequence, and judgment. Um, so I advise anyone listening if you haven't seen it, get Disney Plus and give it a watch. <laughs> I promise I'm not on commission. Other streaming services are available. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, I agree. Free Solo is a, a good watch, definitely. Definitely look at that. Uh, so, Laurie, coming back to you, because you had a point to come back on, uh, on something that Mike had said, I think. Yeah, it's now a different one. I feel like we've moved to a different place. I'll maybe get there eventually. Um, it was just to, to go back to this idea. So in your paper, Mike, you discuss these various perspectives um, around decision-making and, and the crux of the difference between them being the role of cognition. So if I think about the sport that I've predominantly experienced in my life, which is sailing, I think the coaches I've worked with have um, um, viewed decision-making as a cognitive process. And, and we, again, in my experience, have developed real knowledge of the sport, knowledge of the race. Um, rules of thumb are quite typical, shared mental models, all that sort of stuff. So what are the risks involved in, um, in rules of thumb, in shared mental models? Just to go back to what Kerry and, and yourself were discussing earlier. I think, I think in, in regards to the crux of the debate being cognition, um, some perspectives at the moment may be moving with that, um, which I find difficult given the ontological basis of that, but I don't think that's an argument to really get into tonight. But in regards to your, in regards to the question, I think the, the issue is with rules of thumb and heuristics, you look at human behavior throughout history, some of the biggest successes and the biggest failures of human behavior have been based on heuristics. So for example, we look at the credit, um, the, the crash, the economic crash of 2006 based on the housing market. People just did what they always did because they still received the same credit for what they were doing. Heuristic, so bias after bias after bias when we're not actually looking at the what was actually going on. So I think there is always a danger with rules of thumb and heuristics if you're not willing to be critical of those rules of thumb. So if we apply it to tactics, rules of thumb might work for say England in the six nations, uh, cause they know that it will unlock their opponents, but they, sh they might have the critical nature to look at those heuristics and say, 
they're not going to work. Those rules of thumb aren't going to work when we come up against the South Africa's, the, the Southern Hemisphere teams in the world. And I think it's being conscious and aware of the rules of thumb that exist, which is, as we say, they often exist in our tacit, uh, our, our tacit cognitive ability. So if we are able to use metacognition and think about our thinking and reflect on those things, then we've become better able to consider how those rules of thumb can be applied, if that answers the question. It looks like Carrie had some thoughts on, on what you were saying there. <laughs> Uh, um, in terms of mitigating the risks of falling into heuristic traps and biases, um, one of the things I try to do, I'm trying to give some practical real life examples, I guess, as we're going along here, um, is, is I try to get people I work with to think across domains. And this might feed into what, what potentially comes later in this, in this discussion. So if we think about some of the trends and heuristics, as you've put it, that we see in society. Um, maybe from the 90s, 2010s, we saw the rise of the specialist. Um, people who maybe were an inch wide and a wide, an inch wide and a mile deep, you know, um, a lot of experts growing in lots of different fields. And then over the last 10 years, we've seen more of a rise of generalist thinking, more so. So it's a bit mile wide and an inch deep, or if you look at Twitter in the political discourse, maybe five miles wide and a millimeter deep. <laughs> no offense, uh, maybe you cut that. But um, I mean, I, I think if we look back in history at the great successes, um, as you put it, and maybe what the future holds, this is probably gonna see the rise of a polymath you know, where we get people who are sort of like two miles wide and, you know, a half a mile deep. And so what I try to do with my clients is get them exposed to different types of thinking, to get them exposed to different industries and get them to learn what they can borrow from different um, discourse um, and different ways of operating. So whilst that sounds very complicated and quite academic, it's actually really simple. Um, for example, you could be working with someone who um it may be looking at volatility trading for example going back to your example of financial industries someone is a vol trader you might want to maybe introduce something around dynamic systems maybe how that's applied in rugby for example mike because you work in that but then maybe take that to another level and look at how we look at weather modeling how can that help that person interpret vol services better so they make better decisions around their trades or we might look at um the similarities between a neurosurgeon um, and a big wave surfer and um, a table tennis player. So again, is it about conviction of decision-making or is it about efficacy of decision-making when they're in that dynamic process and they need the speed of decision-making? So I try and introduce different things from different domains. So I might send a physics paper to one person that doesn't work anywhere near physics or might be doing something in engineering, or I might send something from uh, sailing decision-making sport essentially um, over to someone that's trying to develop a way of switching from forehand to backhand in tennis so they, I'm sure there's a lot that we can share and I think the rise of the polymath is, is on the horizon maybe the next wave of enlightenment we will see more of this um, and then a lot of the specialists will find their place across lots of domains um, and this idea of um, everyone being an expert um, will be debunked I just want to, I just, 
sorry i i just want to attach on to that because basically the the key finding in my phd was that we we look for that decisions occur in different ways depending on the the situation and the context of that situation and within that is a a certain amount of complexity based on information and a certain amount of time that's associated with the decision so to like focus around recognition prime decision making so Derek used the idea of judgment earlier we we know that there are there are decisions that are very much based on evaluation mental rehearsal because time's almost there is time rich the information is complex but we've seen it before we know it works before then we've also got other situations where we're required to diagnose but in a very rapid uh, manner and then we've got others where right i've seen it before i've got a simple match and i think what what really refreshed me then about what you were saying is maybe maybe the trick is in identifying the relationship between the complexity of those the situations that cross across contexts. So uh, is, the, is the police officer or the fireman, who's also the rugby coach, really quite um, diligent in the way they sit down and develop a tactical solution? Because that's pretty much what they go through and recognize day to day in the way they deal with their, their workforce. And um, so that, that really resonated with me there. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, crossing sports has allowed me to recognize within my own you know uh, elements of training that we don't utilize enough like I, you know I, I support coaches I think to include more representative design in certain areas of the training so I think we could do more of it so um, which kind of leans into this communal language that that you've written about Mike yeah sorry I'll shut up that was so interesting yeah it's almost like it was planned because it fits really well into my question which was about uh, making decisions across different contexts um, so yeah, my question was, to what extent is the skill of good decision-making, if there is such a skill, um, transferable across different contexts? And it looked like Kerry had something to say based on what Mike was saying. Um, so maybe we'll go to her first. It was, it was kind of, it's, it's sort of not quite leading towards your question, though it sort of went back a little. I'm oh, sorry, never mind. Uh, <laughs> um, sorry. Um, but it was, it was this idea of um, the pursuit of synergy. So even when you, if I introduce to some clients um, that there's these different domains to explore, it's the perception of what's contextually similar. I'm sorry to, to phrase it like that, but in order to get transfer from one environment or one context to another, people need to perceive the link between A and B. Um, even if it, one doesn't exist, it's the perception of what links this to that, which allows us to join the dots. And pursuing those synergies between this environment and that environment or that sport and this sport or that industry and that industry, it's the pursuit of that link that is actually quite um, inspiring for people. And I see people being lit up all the time that I work with because they found a link between one thing and another that they never thought was there before. And they'll, they'll, they'll present it back to me and I'll be like, I, I don't see it, but you see it, that's the most important thing. And it really is the most important thing. So, um, but based on what Mike was saying there in terms of how we, how we model, I think is, is where we were going there. Um, what I try to do is I try and get people to break it down um, in terms of how they use the data. So does, does the modeling allow us to consider hindsight? Is it proper historical context? Is it real data that we can use to inform decision-making? Is it insight? 
So is there some complexity around what we're looking at? And therefore we need to look and interrogate this in a little bit more detail. Is it foresight? Can it predict what we do next? So how does it inform the heuristics and the framework that we put around the team? How does it change the way we talk about our shared mental models? How can we help predict what will come next? How do we stay agile? So we know if we've got a particular team, and that heuristic won't apply, how we adapt to make sure that it does work. And then there's this oversight bit, which is just doing the due diligence. So slightly off track here, sorry, Anna, but it's just a way of sort of framing how we make the decisions based on hindsight, insight, foresight, oversight, um, maybe allows us to kind of use the data in a useful way as we move from one domain to another. I guess on that, um, I, I, some, some of my work has looked at the influence of laws um, in rugby union and how modified laws influence the decision making of individuals and how that actually occurs. And I think just touching on what you were saying there about the foresight element, we know the best coaches in the world across multiple domains. If we look at Sergio Laura Bercial's work with Cliff Mallet around serial winning coaches, they identified the, the ability to have vision and see into the future almost about what law modifications or rule modifications were going to come to have the foresight to make quite um, deliberate off field uh, decisions about how their team were going to come up with tactical solutions. And um, I just think the laws at times or the rules or the, let's say the accepted rules, if we're looking in other contexts like business or so on and so forth, they, they get a bit lost um, when we think about the decision. But let's remember that every decision a player or a person makes is to achieve the preliminary goal of the task they're trying to achieve in the first place. So in rugby, to score more points than your opponent, or in business or in finances, it's to build the amount of money for your company. Um, and I think you can't have a decision without looking at the demand from the law in the first place. And the way we approach that is really quite important. I actually find that quite a lot. Um, a lot of people will sort of bring me in and they'll say, okay, what, what does our model for performance need to look like in this particular business? And we'll start thinking about strategy and the vision and we'll say, you know, the usual questions, which is, okay, who's the best in the world at this at the moment? Where are you? What's the gap analysis? What's it going to take um, to be the best for what it is that you do? And of course, the challenge with that is it's, it's historically discrete. So it's only based on what it is now. And, um, and so one of the key things with that when it comes to foresight in coaching is to try and create something unique, to try and open up the client's mind or the athlete's mind to thinking a little bit more creatively. What could it be? Not what we've got now or what someone else has done before. But what is the potential? What could we create that is unique and ours that makes everyone else chase us? And so it's really, I find it's really important to bring that as a coach because otherwise you're only coaching to rote, you're only coaching based on what another team might be doing or what another person has done before, rather than creating something special and unique for the individual. And I think if you stay in that space, you're always working with your strengths. They're always saying, okay, what are we good at? What can we be even better at? And then what can we, we be absolutely world-class at that is unique for us? Um, and that'll create a unique culture. Um, and then uh, that's that's the way I think to get world leading rather than just world class. How do you develop foresight? Oh, what a question. 
Kerry, do you want to take this one first or? Yeah, I think I've kind of touched on it there. It's having a, an entrepreneurial and innovative mindset. So when it comes to considering what opportunities exist in a particular space, not just thinking about what exists in our industry, but what, what will the world be like? What are the trends telling us about the way the world is going to change? And then what will be our unique place in making this world better? And if we think about what our space is in making that world better, then we start to create a model and we start to create an idea of what could be. And um, I know that sounds very conceptual, but when it comes to every unique business or every unique individual, if we start asking those questions, what's the world going to be like in 10 years? What's going to be my place in it? What difference can I make? How do I work towards that? Instead of trying to compete against your peers, you're actually starting to set your own agenda. And that, I think, allows us to open up our ideas around foresight, um, thinking more broadly, and thinking a little bit more ambitiously about what we can become. So that's, that's the way I tend to do it for people. Yeah, I think practical examples, you look at things like Total Football, the Fosbury flop, things that completely break the, uh, the tendency of the tactical solutions that occur. And I mean, I look at rugby and I feel like rugby is in a tactical stalemate at the moment where everyone plays the same way. Everyone approaches the laws in the same way. Where's the original tactical solutions to look at the laws and go, you know what? We haven't played this way. Let, let's give it a go. Obviously, there are added pressures to that with the pressures of their job. I mean, one thing I did want to touch upon, just coming back to your original question, Anna, was around, I, I think, coach. The best coach developers I've worked with are fantastic at, at looking at decision-making across contexts because they're able to recognize the moments for learning in their practice with the coaches they work with. They're able to, to recognize what the learning environment looks like and what that coach is trying to achieve and then work with that coach to better be able to achieve it. I think it's a real nice um, analogy around coach development that these sports are all different with the coaches that they're working with. The demands are different, yet the how and the pedagogy and the why, the reasoning behind the coaches' decisions remain the same. The theories that underpin them, the values that underpin them. And coach developers have this amazing knack of recognizing that and perceiving that and then intervening. Yeah, just really quickly to touch on that because you've really hit a nerve there like those cultural influences in terms of what's privileged, jumping in and out of sports, what do people pay attention to? So when even developing and reviewing decision-making, I notice in different sports what people really pay attention to, and that must be a cultural influence of the sport and those multiple layers surrounding it. And that's, that's been fascinating for me. Totally fascinating. Go Kerry. No, I, I, absolutely. If you want, if you want to focus specifically on sport, I can give some 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 examples. So, one of the athletes I worked with a little while back was a table tennis player, and um, table tennis is the number one sport in China. So you can imagine the amount of people who play it in China. It's very difficult to compete against the ones that are at the top end. And so there was a, a paradigm sort of that, oh, no, we don't beat China. We can't beat China. Never gonna, we're never going to beat China. And, um, and so being little me from outside the sport, you know, I kind of did a lot of analysis and I sort of thought, no, this is doable. You know, really what we need to do is change the way we're looking at this, change the way we see the rules, change the way we apply ourselves to this. 
So um, one of the one of the young British lads I've been working with for a little while, um, we went out to our first tournament together, and I think it was the third round or something. We came up against Ma Long, and he is like the greatest ever table tennis player. So greatest, one of the greatest sports people, I guess, given that he's from China. And we managed to win. I should say the athlete won. I was just in the corner cheering him on. Um, but the point was, is that the way we went about the work was different. The way we prepared looked different. The way we applied the rules was different. And, and even just when you do it differently, it makes people go, hang on a minute, what am I missing? What am I missing? So it just makes, it creates a little bit of a shock in the system enough to make people go, hang on. And, and, and some, some of it was probably well placed and some of it might have been a bluff who knows we'll never know but the point was we got the results uh, and i'll give another example so um in darts one of one of the people i work with and there was a moment where it was like mm, maybe we should stack over 17s and i was like why don't you do more 17s and i'm like 17s less than 20 and i'm like yeah but when you get to the doubles it doesn't matter does it so why don't we just do more 17s if you prefer to be aiming there, that's what your perception, that's how your brain orientates. Why, why are we doing more 17s? Okay, let's do more 17s. And it was a huge breakthrough. So I, I agree in that you know, some of the coaches that I see work well across domains are able to just go, hang on a minute, could, could we just? Um, and and I, I think that's, that is an important quality. I see it in, in a lot of coaches. I'm not saying I'm one of them, but um, a lot of good coaches are able to go, why are we doing this way again? Can we not just do it this way? Um, so uh, yeah, that's that's something I see also across across the industries. Just look at the um, comparison between the English Rugby Premiership and the Super Rugby, in the fact that the Super Rugby is ring fenced in terms of their its franchise and teams stay in the league, and whereas in rugby there is a huge um, consequence of promotion and relegation. And it's also played in a climate that is much worse than the Super Rugby's environment. So when you think about the cultural factors, so if we think realistically now, like, and we, we look from the socioeconomic level coming in and the cultural level, it, it, well, it's pretty likely that the Southern Hemisphere are going to play with a lot, more, a lot less fear. And it's pretty likely that the Northern Hemisphere are going to be a little bit more cagey and a little bit more... Um, direct in the way they go about their tactical solutions. So it, when, we can't simply just look at cause and effect in the player's behaviour on the field. It, it has to come from elsewhere as well, as you say. There are huge things at play when we look at decision-making. There's, there's a cue for people to ask questions. I was uh, pop, popping off. <laughs> um, Derek, what's your question about? Well, one is just an interesting um, observation with what Mike has, Mike has just said and we talk about risk and we make decisions based on not losing games rather than going out to win games which I think it, it is the difference as well in, in Super Rugby um, so teams go out um, with the intention to win I think teams in the Premiership go out with the intention not to lose um, which completely changes your decision making and your uh, relationship with risk in the context of those games as well but I, I was actually wanting to go back to what uh, Kerry was talking about in terms of um, foresight and entrepreneurialism and maybe just also building on what Mike was talking about earlier on around recognition prime decision making and maybe touching on classical decision making as well but but what extent or what what um, what influence do you think intuition has 
on on decision making. And I know, Kerry, you talked about perhaps not coaching people to be better decision making or coaching decision making, but do you coach people to be more in tune with their gut or their intuition, which in turn may allow them to become more effective decision makers? A bit of a random question. I it's think. a great question. You know, a, a lot of people, I guess, that work with me, they go, "How do you know that? You know, like how how do you sense that? You know, you, you've got a crystal ball back there, and, and actually, um, there's no voodoo involved. It's just a lot of hard work. Um, I spend a lot of time watching and observing. I spend a lot of time taking the notes, doing the due diligence, and uh, analyzing performance to a ridiculous amount of detail. Um, and so that's part of it. But what I try to do, I think answering the, the second part of the question there, um, do I try to coach intuition? What I try to do is get people to better understand and manage themselves as performers. And by better understanding themselves as performers and then managing themselves as performers, generally they get the best outcomes. Um, and that journey of better understanding themselves has many, many threats. So understanding yourself as a performer, you have to first understand who you are, where you've come from, why you are where you are. Um, and so it does go quite deep. And, and so I have to pick, I mean, I'm very lucky, I get to pick my clients rather than them picking me. Um, but but I, I pick my clients based on who I believe is ready to go there, to really explore who they are, where they're from, where they are and where they want to go next. And, and by being open to that and understanding then how we perform and why we perform the way we do, that gives me an in. It gives me a very good base of trust and respect with the person to try and influence them and nudge them and prime them into the direction of travel where it's going to lead them to the best success. So um, I'm always very aware that they place their souls in my hands. And that's a huge privilege. And I have to treat that with a lot of respect um, and discretion. And so it's a, it's a very special journey for me when I work with someone. Um, and I, in a way, I feel kind of sorry for a lot of coaches that are in systems because there's a lot of framework now around how coaches are meant to engage or what they should and shouldn't do. But for me, as an independent consultant, I'm giving myself the freedom and I'm being very open with the client about the fact that we're going to dig deep here. If there is something going on in your life that's going to impact your performance, it's my business. Mm -hmm. And if you're not prepared to allow yourself to make that my business, you're not ready for this type of coaching. And that's fine. There's millions of coaches out there. So I'm, that's, that's try it. That's kind of, it sounds a bit disciplinarian, a bit authoritarian, but it's actually with the right heart and with the right intent in mind. So I'm hoping that people are not just better for my coaching, but they're better having better people for having done it. Um, that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, just just on that, I thought that was fantastic. And uh, I mean, I'm uh, my first my first way of doing things. You can tell I've just come out the end of a PhD. Is to think about is to think about a theory that relates to what you're discussing. It's very much the way uh, I, I draw things out. And um, I I love old like, old literature that still remains prevalent. And I think um, Anderson's work that looks at knowledge. And this difference between, so it separates knowledge between procedural and declarative. Procedural being the what and the how, and declarative being the why. And we know, and this is where evidence does come to the fore, we know that if you spend a deliberate amount of time 
working and looking and looking at the right things, then your intuition will come to the fore. Your retention and your transfer will transfer across. And that goes for coaches. It goes for players. So we know that understanding, that understanding why, is possibly one of the key, the key denominators in, in good, strong decision makers. Um, and one only needs to read Daniel Kahneman's work um, just to, to find that. And I think that, that's really jumped out at me there, that, that why, that, that in-depth, in-depth look at the problem. And yeah, I'm a huge fan of Kahneman as well, obviously, from an economic perspective. Um, the, um, I, I absolutely agree. Some of the older literature can tell us quite a lot. Even when we think about the old ideas around intelligence, like crystalline intelligence versus fluid intelligence, and going back to what we were saying earlier about working across domains, I think uh, revisiting some of that stuff um, is wise. Um, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying there. So what do we not yet know that would allow us to understand the processes underpinning decision making better? Well, the idea of having this universal sense of mind, and I know that that's very uh, theoretical, but we, we still don't know so much about who we are or what we're here for. We don't even know why our brains work the way they do or if they could work better. We, we don't know a lot at all, to be honest with you. Um, we like to think we do, but, but we really don't know much. Um, but what, in terms of decision-making, um, I, think, I think the best we can do is use historical data. We can go back and we can see what decisions we made, what were effective, which ones weren't, and learn from them. So we try and convolute and overcomplicate it, but really all we're trying to do is learn from our experiences more importantly, learn from everybody else's. Um, because we always think about our own. We reflect on our own minds. We reflect on what's worked for us and why we are where we are often. But we don't really interrogate and learn from other people's um, opportunities and errors. And, um, and so I think if that's the bit we could probably do better at, is interrogating one another's decisions as much as our own. So I think that, that could be a, a decent way forward. I make bad decisions every single day, and I'd be happy to share them all with you. I had a leftover mince pie earlier. <laughs> that was great content. <laughs> Best thing you said all evening. <laughs> Mike, uh, can you match that? <laughs> oh no, not at all. That was brilliant. Um, I guess, I guess for me, what uh, uh, my view of the world is, I'm an out pragmatist. And I find value in things that are practically meaningful and practically useful. And by practically meaningful and practically useful, I mean, do they work? And is there evidence that they work? Uh, so uh, there, people are very quick to disregard the old, but the old is there to allow us to now explore things and make sense of things as we do. Um, there's that amazing phrase, um, we're simply dwarfs standing on the shoulder of giants. Um, so I'm very lucky to uh, research something where there are three um, quite well-founded and solidified uh, perspectives of this problem in sport. So therefore, I was able to integrate the three, um, much to the dismay of other people, I guess. Um, but with that is, let's look at what is practically useful. We don't know everything. And the, the fact that we don't know everything, use it as an opportunity rather than 
an attempt to say, no, I'm going to be quite objective about this and say, this is the way people make decisions. And I think if we are better able to look at the fallibility of decision making, which it is, because we are simply making assumptions through our own conceptions of what decision making seems to be, well, we need to embrace that fallibility and then find out what's practically useful. And uh, that is pretty much my perspective on things. I'd agree with that. I think we are dwarfs sitting on the shoulders of giants. But I think what, what we could also do is bring a bit of ego into it a little bit and say, we could be giants because we don't know if we're, we are or we're not yet. There will be people that look back on the decisions that we all take here, maybe not on this podcast, maybe, who knows, um, but maybe look back on us in 20 years' time and say, I they did that quite well, didn't they? We wouldn't be where we are if they didn't do what they did. Look at that Alice Doctor. Look at her. Look how she skimmed over that mince pie bit. But the point, <laughs> amazing work. So um, the point is, is that I guess we are our decisions, aren't we? That's all we are. That we are just the decisions that we take. And so I think we should embrace the fact that most of us are messing up most of the time. But we also have to recognize that we are doing some things that are great. You look at this, it's a global pandemic. We're all in lockdown and we're sitting here thinking about how we can make other people better. Right? We're talking about how do we influence coaches to go out there and be motivated to help others be great. So let's just pause a minute and just go, yeah, we're pretty good too. So, you know, I think it's important that we don't forget that we can be giants because that, that's, that's sort of, why else would we get up in the morning? That's maybe my ego coming into play there though, folks. It did actually have a mince pie slice earlier, which is neither a mince pie or a slice. It's a mixture of the two. And it's- That's why you didn't call me out. Do you guilty as well? There we go. <laughs> it's because it's actually still December. It's like <laughs> January is like the extension of December. So unless anyone has any other big burning questions to, uh, to ask, um, I think we'll try and uh, wrap up with a the little quick fire parting question. So. Um, you might have already answered this question in some of your our chats already because we've covered loads of really big areas and really great points, um, mince pies aside. So my quick fire questions wrap things up. We'll go with uh, Mike first. What's the most valuable thing you've learned about decision making? How and why? Uh, I've actually spent quite a lot of time thinking about thinking about this earlier, and I guess for me, decision making always precedes performance. Um, and I think that idea is is fascinating uh, and we can't just and that pretty much captures in itself what coaching is so it captures the what if we look at the tactical solutions that that teams or individuals hold it captures the who the individual themselves their biopsychosocial makeup it captures the self of the person who's actually being inquisitive about that particular decision and then also those those things equate within the context to result in the how, how a coach actually goes about it. And then also, and perhaps most importantly, the why. So why the coach actually decides to intervene or decides to, to discuss something with a player or an individual about their decision. And I, I just think that's such a fascinating prospect is that the, the decision precedes that performance. So like, like, 
Karan said, it's uh, we are our decisions. Uh, I think that was a real nice way of putting it. This is going to sound a little bit obvious, but we can get really, we can get much better at it. We can just get better at it. It's trainable. You know, we, we are we are very adaptable as humans and um, we can just get a lot better at it. And that really, hopefully, will define our future um, because the decisions will create our future. That's just it, basically. <laughs> We're just going to get better at it. Yeah, all that's left is uh, for me to wrap up. So I think that was an inspiring episode. I feel I feel inspired to be better. <laughs> um, so yeah, I really enjoyed that. So thank you both for your time and thanks Laurie and Derek for the excellent questions. Um, our listeners might know that uh, we'll have a little debrief with our with our two beer minimum um, in a few days time yet to be decided, but I can't wait for that as well. Um, and so we look forward to hearing people's feedback when when we get out there and uh, we look forward to mulling this topic over even more. So thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs>